0: Well, good morning. What a month February was. We're thankful to see the month of March. Uh, February felt a lot longer to the Patricks than just being one day longer than your usual February. So much happened in the month of February, not just for the Patrick family, but for the GPC church family. Decisions were made in the month of February that redirect trajectories of life. How else do you put it? And we are very humbled and very grateful. Uh, While we were in White Oak, South Carolina last Sunday, which is where my parents live, I was preaching there at my home church, we were aware that you were having a congregational meeting. Uh, We did not anticipate a unanimous vote for this, this call to ministry. And so I'm truly humbled. I'm truly thankful uh, for that. That is, that is encouraging to this minister. And so I, I thank you for that. And now, uh, just as a point of personal privilege before we begin the sermon, now the same Lord who has shepherded our family and who has shepherded the GPC church family to this point We now trust Him to shepherd the presbytery through this process. I keep telling people as they congratulate me on being the new pastor at GPC, I keep saying, that's not true yet. There is a presbytery that we are waiting to see what they conclude. And that is all a part of what can feel like a tedious process, but it is a good process. And it's one that we're thankful for. It will give us all a sense of assurance and confidence that this has not been done hastily or foolishly, but with caution and with wisdom. And as Presbyterians, that's exactly how we like to proceed. Amen? Amen. By the way, uh, just so that you know my family a little, bit, a little bit better, we were driving home from my parents' Uh, when we got the news and we were reflecting on the news that there had been a unanimous vote, 95 to 0, that we should step forward in this. And my dear number three child, Palmer, my 14-year-old son, said, gosh, Dad, if we had all been there and voted, it would have been 98 to 1. Cutting his eyes and smiling at me to say, I would have voted no. (laughs) And so he has his father's sense of humor. (laughs) We're in the midst of a series for the weeks that I'm preaching when Archie is not here. And this is the third week that I'll share with you a series that I've done with Erskine students on the hymns of the church. And I've told you and will continue to tell you that there is great beauty and blessing when we sing the words of Scripture and the truths of Scripture in poetic form, meshed together with real life experiences that we can relate to. And that is what the hymns are. The hymns are taking, the good ones I should say, are taking the truths of Scripture and the theology of Scripture and they're wedding it together with real life experience that our brothers and sisters of old who composed those hymns as poems, they lived through those experiences even as we are now. And it weds truth together with real life into poetry that we sing. And what I love about it is the hymns in that way make truth portable for us. It helps us take truth into the work week as we leave singing these hymns together. Now we can take those songs in our hearts and those truths are remembered in our minds because they were wed together to song. I think I told you last time that it was Martin Luther Um, who held up a Bible in one hand before his congregation and said, this is the Word of God. And in the other hand, he held up the hymn book and said, this is how we remember it, which is to say the power of music to help us memorize truth. And so that's why we're taking the time to consider these hymns. I've told you that this is the resource that's giving me the the, the biographical background on the hymn writers. This is a book by Faith Cook called Our Hymn Writers and Their Hymns. If you like history at all, if you like biography at all, this is very well done and will give you great history and context of particular hymn writers. This morning, the title of our sermon is Growing Pains. Sanctification tends to hurt. And sanctification, if you're not familiar with that word, it's a biblical word. It's a theological word. And it communicates to us that truth from Scripture that God is not just in the business of forgiving a people, that those who He forgives, He transforms. He changes He makes us to be more like Himself. That is, He grows us in holiness. And in our culture, it's not unusual for people to harp on justification alone. That, hey, you can be forgiven of your sin. But the whole picture of Scripture is that where there is justification, there will be sanctification. That those whom God saves, He changes over the course of a lifetime. And so our young people should be experiencing sanctification, and our older people should be continuing in sanctification. It is a lifelong process. And the truth is, as we'll hear this morning, it tends, like all growth, to hurt. Sanctification requires some pain, some tweaking, some growing pains. And with that as an introduction, give your attention to God's Word. This morning it's taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 5-10. through 10. We heard some of this at the beginning of the service in words of reflection and in uh, preparation for worship. But here Paul, the context of what we're going to hear is this. Paul is warning that though he could boast in his accomplishments he has learned that he is to be humbled by what god has done in him and that god in fact is sanctifying him by giving him some pain in his life and let's see what that pain is second corinthians chapter 12 verses 5 through 10 i will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses even if i should choose to boast i would not be a fool Because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. Or, because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh. A messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why... For Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray that God would help us understand and rightly apply his word. Let's pray. Lord, would you open our eyes our ears, and our hearts that we might see and hear and know that you are truly good to your people, even in the midst of our hurt and our pain. Lord, we ask this and we pray it together in Jesus' name, amen. Growing pains, you may remember these. I have memories as I don't know if I was twelve or thirteen or fourteen years old of lying in bed at night and my legs just aching. My muscles, and it felt like my bones were aching in my legs. And I remember getting up and going to my mom, and she I said, Mom, why are my legs hurting? And she said, You're having growing pains. You remember these, right? They're terrible. Now the truth is, uh, the Mayo Clinic this week ruined a perfectly good sermon illustration for me. (laughs) Because as I researched this, I learned that we call them growing pains, but we have no evidence whatsoever that we're actually growing through those pains. Ruined my sermon illustration, but we're going to run with it anyway, (laughs) because I know them as growing pains, and so do you. Perhaps it's a wives' tale. I I guess that we just assumed that since we grow through pain and everything in life, that when our legs hurt, our bones must be growing. It just makes too much sense. But the Mayo Clinic says no. But in your own experience, isn't it true that it's through pain that you grow? Also... You understand that when a child is born, there has been a long historic practice when the baby is born of doing what? Spanking the child immediately upon birth. So I researched this. Once again, the Mayo Clinic ruined a perfectly good illustration. So I understand they don't spank children anymore when they're born, but they do do this, I'm told. They agitate the child, they massage the child, they harass the child with a towel. They disturb the child. So we used to spank, now we harass and disturb with a towel, I'm told, by the Mayo Clinic, but for the same purpose, for the same reason. When a child is born, it has to transition from living and breathing amniotic fluid to becoming an air breathing creature. And so the doctors have learned we have to agitate, disturb, harass this child to clear the lungs, the airways, so that it might live and do well. And so there you have it. There is something, there's something commonly learned by us that growth, that progress, that success comes through hardship, it comes through agitation, it comes through harassment. And the Apostle Paul essentially says the very same thing in this passage about our spiritual lives. I have four simple points for you this morning and a biography on the life of John Newton. And your four points are these. Paul was tormented by a thorn. Paul pled three times to the Lord to remove it. But Paul did not, the Lord did not remove it because Paul needed to experience firsthand who God was. Therefore, bring on the pain. Therefore, bring on the pain. We can delight in it because God is good. Those are your four points. We'll take those one at a time. First in verse 7 of Second Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says he was tormented by a thorn. What does it mean to be tormented? Well, it's as bad as it sounds. It's exactly what you think. It is to be irritated. It's to be agitated. It's to be disturbed. It's to be discomforted. It's to hurt. Thorns hurt. So what's a thorn? Well, the word can be translated st- This is the one place that the word appears, and it's translated commonly as thorn. But we understand that Paul is saying here, this could be a physical thorn. This could be a pain in his flesh. Or this could be a pain in his soul, a pain in his spirit. It could be a spiritual wound. We don't know what his thorn in particular is. We just know his description of it, that it torments him. That it's difficult for him. That it hurts. Theologians have said it's a good thing that we don't know what this thorn is. Because now you and I can read our own thorns into the passage and see how God relates and connects to us. So for some of you, it's a physical thorn that you've pled with the Lord. Why do I have to deal with this physical pain? For others of you, it might be a psychological or an emotional or a spiritual issue that is that nagging, constant thorn in your life or in your family's life. And whatever the case, there's a sense in which we're free to fill in the blank and know that the Lord can use that thorn for your good. I know there have been a few times in my life that I've been pretty sure that the Apostle Paul's thorn was a kidney stone. And then there have been a few times that I've thought, you know, I don't think it's that. I think he threw his back out and had back spasms and couldn't get up for three days. And then sometimes I've thought, he must have had Meniere's disease. He must have felt dizzy and off balance when speaking in public. You see, we can all read our own issues into this, and there's a right way to do that. There's a right way to know that the Lord can use this for our Good. And so it may be a depression. It may be an anxiety. It may be a family historic incident or accident that is a constant wound on your life. The Apostle Paul said he pled in this instance three times that the Lord would take it away. And so here's what we can say about this thorn. The thorn was of God. It was used of God. But for Paul, it seemed to have a diabolic message that came with it. And that message was one of discouragement, one of hurt, one of harassment, one of irritation. So I don't know what your thorn is. I just know that you likely have one physically, emotionally, spiritually. A thorn of the soul, perhaps. But can you find comfort in this message this morning that thorns are common to us all and they may have a diabolic message attached to them, but they are of God and as we'll see, they're for our good. Paul says in verse 8, he says, I pled three times for the Lord to remove it, to take away the pain. And the Lord answered his prayer with a no. And aren't those the hardest answers to hear? You know, no is an answer to prayer. We just tend to not be content with that answer. But the apostle Paul himself lets us know, I pled before the Lord three specific times to remove that thorn, to get the relief like when a splinter, a painful splinter is taken out of your hand, to have some relief. And God answered his prayer with a no. And some of us have had that common experience that we wish life's circumstances were different, that life's pain was different, That something would change and bring immediate relief, immediate comfort. And for some of you, that answer has been no. This situation is to shape you. This situation is for your good, even though it does not feel like it is. But you will learn that it is what you needed to see that you needed God and all of His grace. And the Apostle Paul concludes that even though the answer was no, it was for Paul's good. It was for his good to endure the thorn. Years ago, I heard a story that I can't help but think on a passage like this. A campus minister friend of mine who was being mentored by really a grandfather in RUF. Some of you may know him. His name was Bebo Elkin. His name is Bebo Elkin. But the young campus minister and his family, uh, their HVAC went out in their home. Young minister, no resources to pay for a brand new HVAC. And like all ministers, he was good at complaining about life. And so he talked to this older minister in his life, and he belly ached a little bit like all ministers are good at doing. And he said, I just don't understand. Why, you know, why would this happen to me? And the older minister said to the younger minister these words. These are the words I'll always remember. He said, now why do you suppose the Lord would love you enough to choose to show you his goodness to you and your family by letting your HVAC break? Now, when someone says something like that to us, what do we want to do? But punch them in the throat. (laughs) But then after thinking about it a while, is it not precisely true? That it's through learning that we don't have the resources, that we are dependent upon the Lord, that we come to learn the greatest lesson of all, that we need help in anything and in everything All the time. You see, that's what the Lord was teaching Paul. In verse 9, we're told that all this happened and the thorn was not removed because Paul needed to experience firsthand that the Lord's grace was sufficient, that the Lord's power would be revealed in his weakness. And therefore, Paul could not boast in himself. He had been taken to the point that he knew he needed the mercy and the power of God. Now, how do we apply that? What sense does that make to us? I think it speaks directly to something I hear all the time in my world and in our culture. And that is it speaks to what I call the three best sounding words that we speak out loud or that we say to each other. They sound good, but they are ill-advised. And here are the words. I got this. Or you got this. We think we're encouraging each other when we tell somebody that. You got this. But if we run that through the grid of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 5 through 10, do you realize that is the most ill-advised words that you could speak to someone in need? To tell them, you got this. You're strong enough to do this. That is the opposite of what the Apostle Paul is saying. Paul is saying, you don't have this. I don't have this. We can't do this. Instead, the Lord's will be done. And those are the most assuring words that we can speak to ourselves and to others. When living through hardship, when living through suffering, when enduring the thorn to say God's will be done because I know that His will is good and that He can use this hardship and this hurt and this pain for my good and for your good. God's will be done. That's the language that we should be speaking to one another. Now here's the hard part and this sounds crazy to say and this is our fourth point. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. Therefore... Bring on the pain because we can delight in it. And that's what he says. He says, we can delight in insults, hardship, persecutions, and difficulties. Really? We can delight in those things? Somehow, strangely, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says if we know that God is at work and that God is good, then when that HVAC breaks down, we can say God's will be done. He is going to show me something of His sufficiency to love and care for my family even if it doesn't conclude in a new and working HVAC. Even if it doesn't include in what we want, God's will will be done and we will be just That is the lesson that we learn. That's what the Apostle Paul says. Now, you and I wish that one thing were true. I put it this way Oh, but if sanctification was on a beach, if sanctification was on a beach with toes in the sand and an umbrella drink in our hand, getting a tan. Wouldn't that be great if sanctification came to us that way? If that was the experience of growth in the Christian life. But it's not what Scripture says. Scripture says we can know that God is working for our good and for His glory and for our sanctification when hardship comes. Sanctification can happen on a beach, but that's not where sanctification tends to happen. It tends to hurt, that we might grow through our weakness, that we might grow through our pain, that we might grow through our loneliness and our sadness to see the faithfulness and the all-sufficient grace of our God. That's what sanctification is. Now, what life better embodies this kind of sanctification Than the life of John Newton and his hymn, which is a prayer for growth called I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow. So, this is where the sermon risks sounding like a history class because it has to be biographical, but there is so much gold in the life of John Newton. Please bear with me. I want to share with you some of the sufferings in the life of John Newton. Uh, John Newton, born in 1725. Lived until 1807. He was from London, England. When I say John Newton, those of you who have any familiarity with his name, remember that he was a slave trader. He worked on a ship and that he wrote Amazing Grace. Um, There is so much more to the life and trials of John Newton that a book like this Uh, Reveals so much of a wonderful, helpful book. I want to talk to you about four seasons in his life. And of course, the reason I would tell you about four seasons in his life is because those four seasons are probably happening or have happened in your life. And so the first season is this Uh, John Newton was born and had good company in his life. This is the season of good company. He had a godly mother who loved him well, and who educated him well. Uh, He was very close to his mother because his father was a sailor and was gone. His father was a rough man. He was not a tender man, and he was not a present man. And so John Newton really didn't know his father, which made him attached all the more to his mother. And he loved his mother, but his mother died when John Newton was seven years old. She had an incredible influence on him. She would pray that one day he might become a minister of the gospel. And perhaps that is because her real prayer was, Lord, don't let him be like his father. So there's pain in the family. And some of you know that pain. Your own history or or your present knows that kind of disappointment in a father, in a husband, and in a dad. But at age seven, his mother died. And that was the first of two women who were significant to him. The second significant woman in his life was but a girl. She was 14 years old. Her name was Mary. And in his journal, John Newton would write, she was beautiful. Beautiful in appearance and beautiful in character. He was drawn to this girl who was only 14 years old and John Newton was 17 years old. But things didn't work out at this time. John Newton would go and board a ship and find himself uh, press-ganged into military service because the king could do that, right? king needed to grow his army. He could go and get who he wanted and make them serve. And so John Newton is on a boat and he says goodbye to the good company in his life. The two women who, who had been in his heart. And this would be the season of bad company for him. At about age 17 into his early 20s. And you know what? That tends to be true of us, doesn't it? Those are the years that we can stumble into some bad company that shapes us. And it was true for John Newton. He was literally surrounded by a bunch of sailors And he found his heart grow cold. He found that he became an agnostic. He was surrounded by rough, hard-hearted sailors. And he would say, that's exactly who I became. And he made effort after effort to fit in with the sailors. But they didn't like him at all. As a matter of fact, some of the shaping influences on his 17 to early 20s were when he was sleeping in a hammock and some of these sailors cut the hammock so that he would fall out of the hammock onto the hardship floor and he would walk with a limp. Those same sailors who he didn't like and would try to always win their, their attention and affection got so sick of him that they threw him overboard. But then when they realized they would get in trouble for getting rid of one of their sailors, they decided, well, we'll pull him back. So they shot him in the hip with a harpoon And pulled him back into the ship. He didn't have any good friends. But like many of us, he did everything he could to win their affection. He was a well-educated man and he was gifted with the ability to write and to rhyme. And so he would write songs down in the galley of the ship. Songs that made fun of the captain. And this is when the men, if they liked him at all, they liked it when he would write a song and he would mock the captain and make fun of the captain. And so you see, John Newton was gifted by God to write poetry, but he abused his gift. He misused his gift to win attention by making fun of the captain. Years later, John Newton would take those same gifts and use them rightly and begin to write hymns of praise to God. By the end of his life, he would have written hymns and composed hymn books. uh, Over 300 hymns in number. And maybe you can relate to that, that you've seen the gifts of, of God in you and you've used them wrongly to bring attention to yourself. And maybe you're learning to use them rightly to bring praise to God and to help others praise God. He had good company. He had bad company but he would write in his journal that the most important time in his life was when he had no company. He was taken as a slave himself. He was chained on a beach and he was starved as he became a slave to slaves for a short period of time in his life. And so you see, sanctification can happen on a beach, but it's not with your toes in the sand and an umbrella drink in your hand. He was chained and starving on a beach. And he said, two things I did. I ate roots at night, which made him sick. And I had one book. I got my hands on one book. It was a mathematical textbook. And to keep his sanity, he said he would draw out mathematical equations in the sand. Now, how awful is this? No food, sunburned on a beach, chained on the beach, doing math in the sand. And he would reflect on, say, it was those years of being alone, that season of being alone, that his mind was freed up from trying to please his other people. And he started to think about two girls, two women in his life. And he remembered his mother. He remembered how she would speak of the Lord. He remembered the Scriptures that he would read to her, the Scriptures that he had memorized as a boy. And then he would start to think about Mary and realize she was a few years older now. If I could just get back to Mary. There's something about Mary, he says. And so one day he would find his way back to Mary. And he would find himself in the fourth season of his life, which we could call... Not great company, but great community. Because now, Wesley, in the next season of his life, he would be put on a ship that had a Christian captain. And that captain would share with him a devotional book, a book about the Lord, a theological book that would now start to reinform his heart and reshape his heart. And it's then that Newton started to journal and started to write out what he was learning and express himself in words that would become hymns and songs of praise. It was in this season of life that he would become friends with George Whitfield and with the Wesley brothers and with William Cooper, another hymn writer. And he would be married to Mary and Mary, the love of his life, years later. You see, the Lord gave him great community. And so now think about yourself for a moment. Isn't it true that if you've had a season of growth in your life, was reading a book any part of it? Was learning to pray and journal a part of it? Was a small group of healthy Christians a part of it? Chances are, yes, That's exactly. those are the same things that God has used in your life. The reading of Scripture, a good book, learning to pray for him in the company of other men, other horses to run with. And it's true of us. It's our own experience. It's how God grows Christians. And so from John Newton, he's given us more than 300 hymns. I don't know if you know these hymns, but these are the ones that our students in RUF have learned to sing. He gave us the hymns, Pensive, doubting, fearful heart. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds. Approach my soul the mercy seat. Glorious things of Thee are spoken. Let us love and sing and wonder. Begone, unbelief. Amazing grace. And this morning's hymn, I asked the Lord that I might grow. And so before we sing that hymn, just a few more little tidbits about sanctification and what we learn from the life of a brother named John Newton. Simply put, as you you go to lunch and as you hopefully think about, talk about sanctification, I want you to hear again that it is simply the growth that God does in Christians. But this is true of it. It's never quick and easy. It hurts, it's costly, and it tends to pry from our hands and from our hearts the things we think we love. It never goes according to our plans, but it does leave us content in Him. That's what sanctification is and does. It pries things from our hearts and from our hands, and that always hurts. By the end of his life, an exciting life filled with ups and downs, John Newton wanted these words put on his tombstone, here lies John Newton, once an infidel and libertine and servant to slaves in Africa, but was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, Restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith that he had long labored to destroy. What a beautiful story of sanctification. That what he had sought to put to death, God would change him in such a way that he sought to bring it to life in other people. Now, his hymn, if we can put the words up, this is one of those many hymns that he wrote. It's called, I asked the Lord that I might grow. And now that you know a little bit about his background and his story, my hope is that these words will come to life for you, that you might even find they're worth printing and putting on your wall. But it's the story, and I'm going to read these words before we sing these words. It's the story of a simple but good prayer of saying, Lord, help me grow as a Christian. I want to grow. And that's a good prayer, isn't it? Lord, I want to grow. But listen to what he says about how that growth, that maturity has come in the last way he ever expected it to come, that he would live through those four seasons of his life of good company, bad company, no company before he finally had great community. So these are the words, and this is much the story of John Newton. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. "'Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request." And by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest, that it would be easy. But instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. He crossed all the fair designs I'd schemed. He cast out my feelings. He laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials that I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break Thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest seek thy all in me. That God would love John Newton so much to not give him what he asked for, to not give him what he wanted the way he wanted it, but to let him see the ruin of his own heart, the weakness of who he was, that he might look heavenward to the strength of God and get more than he ever asked for. That's what sanctification is. It's not getting what you want, the way you want it, when you want it, but it's saying God's will be done. And I trust Him even when life hurts. Let's pray and then let's sing before we come to the table. Lord, we do thank You. We thank You that You don't humiliate us, but You humble us. And I would pray for this church family this morning and for myself as well. That whatever thorn we're feeling in life or have lived in life, that You would give us some glimpse for how You've used it for our good. That somehow You've used it to bring us true hope, a lasting treasure that will not put us to shame. And so, Lord, as we sing this summary of the life of John Newton, may we find the beauty and the hope for our own lives, for our children, for our parents, for our own communities. Lord, lift our hearts that we might sing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.